My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. about this IPCC report and what we should do. And I looked at the other two people and said, you know what, we should do something. We sat down together and said, okay, what can we do? We thought, well, there are other people like us, retired, but had a long history of involvement, really concerned about what's happening. Why don't we try and focus on them and see how we can engage them in more action? That's the voice of Betty Pluis. She and Emma Bider are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. In the last five years, both the mainstream media and substantial elements of the climate movement itself have often centered the role of youth in narratives of the struggle for climate action. There are lots of good reasons for this, not the least of which is the incredible activism and organizing being led by youth around the world. But it's also important to pay attention to the growing engagement in these issues at the other end of the age spectrum, among people variously characterized as seniors or older adults. Betty Pluis is retired after spending most of her life working for Canadian nonprofit organizations focused on international cooperation and development. Her work included lots of policy analysis and policy advocacy, as well as organizing on-the-ground campaigns. Though international development work and environmental concerns often significantly overlap, Pluis herself had not really been directly involved in climate issues. But in 2018, she read that year's report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which is the United Nations body responsible for assessing and synthesizing humanity's knowledge of the climate crisis, and it shocked her. In response, she started talking about the issue with other people that she knew, many of whom were also retired or late-career workers from the international cooperation and development sector. Pretty soon, there was a group of them interested in taking action together, specifically to mobilize other older adults around climate issues. To begin figuring out what exactly that could mean, they organized a series of focus groups with seniors, and they realized pretty quickly that lots of seniors are concerned about the issue. And while many were not sure quite how to get involved, others were already active. Older adults, they realized, could bring some important assets to the climate movement. Often, if they were retired, they could bring time. Some could bring money, not necessarily in the form of substantial wealth, but at least for middle-class seniors in the form of pensions and modest retirement savings. Seniors also have a political voice that politicians are more likely to listen to because they're known to vote at higher rates than younger people. And finally, they have whatever skills they've developed over their lifetimes. Under the name Climate Legacy, the group then applied for and received a small grant to do work related to climate communications targeted specifically at older adults. They hired Bider, a now 30-year-old communications professional who's doing a PhD at Carleton University in Ottawa in anthropology, to do that work. During that process, they developed connections with around 30 existing groups of older adults already engaged in climate action across Canada. 
After much consultation and discussion, they decided that the best focus for Climate Legacy would be to act as a sort of hub for a loose network of these existing groups, and to specifically focus on work related to financial questions in the climate crisis, including things like campaigns to get banks and pensions to divest from fossil fuel industries and invest in renewables. They do a lot to circulate and amplify material related to the work of their network partners through social media, their website, a monthly newsletter, and other mechanisms. They've also produced their own resources related to, again, financial questions and climate, as well as to practices for engaging with seniors about climate issues. They've hosted lots of webinars and have developed seniors-focused climate communications material for elections, and they've collaborated with other groups to support organizations and individual seniors in contributing to government consultations around climate. At the moment, Climate Legacy is in the process of taking stock of their initial period of work and deciding on future priorities. As it becomes safer to do so, they want to engage more with seniors in in-person events, and they're developing pilot projects to explore approaches for connecting specifically with older adults who are concerned with the climate crisis but not yet involved in any way. And they're keen to find opportunities for intergenerational dialogue with youth who are active on these issues. I speak with Pluis and Bider about the climate crisis and about the work of Climate Legacy. My name is Betty Pluis, and I am a member of Climate Legacy. I worked most of my life in international cooperation for organizations like CUSO and other nonprofits in Canada. And we focused a lot on strengthening civil society organizations and citizens' voices in social, environmental, and political activities. Climate Legacy was founded about three years ago by myself and several other people that I knew who had worked also in international cooperation. I guess the push really was the IPCC report in 2018. And in thinking about what we could do, we thought there were probably other people like us who were retired, concerned about climate change, and not quite sure what to do. So we decided we would try and encourage more seniors to get involved in climate action. My name is Emma. I'm the communications coordinator for Climate Legacy. Besides that, I'm a communications professional who's worked in comms in some way or another for the last five years. And I'm also a PhD student at Carleton University in anthropology, looking at people's relationships to trees in Ottawa. What have your individual trajectories been in terms of your awareness of the climate crisis and your activities in that area before your involvement in climate legacy? I actually wasn't very engaged with climate action before we decided to set up climate legacy. As I said, I worked in international cooperation, and of course, environmental concerns were a big part of that. And more recently, people began to talk about climate change and the impact that it was having on particularly poor people in poor countries. I was very involved with nonprofits, so I had a lot of experience with policy analysis, with advocacy, mainly at the federal government level, but also at the international global level. I had experience also in campaigning and organizing people on the ground, but not really specifically in the area of climate action. But I really just felt I should continue to work in this area and take the experiences that I've had in other social action areas and apply it to climate change. In my case, I think I became aware of and concerned about climate change when I was about 16 years old. So early 2000s, I guess. 
And it's sort of always been part of my life. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts about working with older Canadians is talking about that change. I'm 30 years old. It's been part of my entire adult life. And so it's an interesting thing to discuss with the steering committee, this difference in perspective, I guess you could say. And sometimes helpful because, of course, there are lots of other crises that happened in the world prior to climate change that also seemed unsolvable. But I have been concerned for a long time, but I was always more of an artistically minded person and didn't think, therefore, that I had much of a role to play except to go to rallies or go to protests when they occurred. And so probably in the last four years is when I've become more active in, say, getting organized with grassroots groups or getting organized politically. And then, of course, realizing that I could do a lot of this kind of work with my own research as well from an academic perspective. And I think the most recent interest that I have is this question of how do we talk about climate change to various different demographics. And Betty, what was the path from reading the IPCC report in 2018 to founding Climate Legacy? I was just struck by the fact that we had not very much time, that we had these very serious impacts of climate change in many different aspects of the work that I had already been involved in, in terms of women's rights, international human rights, food production, and that we really needed to focus on this and to bring together some of the skills that we had to try and figure out a way forward. So I was at actually an event with two or three other people shortly after the report was brought out. We were just chatting and I've been thinking all week about this IPCC report and what we should do. And I looked at the other two people and said, you know what, we should do something. And so we sat down together and said, okay, what can we do? So as I mentioned earlier, we thought, well, there are other people like us, retired, but had a long history of involvement, really concerned about what's happening. Why don't we try and focus on them and see how we can engage them in more action? So we organized a series of focus groups where we brought together 10, 15 people and said, what are you thinking about climate change? What do you feel when you hear these words? What do you feel like you could be doing about it? There was a lot of concern. There was a certain amount of feeling overwhelmed that the issues were so large, they were not sure what to do. There was concern that even if you tried, if there were some things that you could do in your own life, they wouldn't be enough to address this overwhelming fact of the changes in climate and what it was wreaking in different areas. A lot of people felt very alone, that it was hard to have conversations or they weren't sure who to have conversations with. And the other issue that Climate Legacy in particular has noticed is that a lot of people feel very disenfranchised from political power. And so to try and figure out how to be heard in these various political systems has been a real challenge. Then we began to realize that there were already quite a few seniors involved in these actions. So we looked at the various groups and tried to understand what they were doing, what their motivation was, what messages worked with them. And eventually we came to the conclusion that this was an important area to focus, that seniors who are concerned but not yet engaged had a number of assets that they could bring to the climate challenge. They had time, not necessarily as much time as they would like, but more time than when they were working. 
In many cases, they had money. They were not necessarily wealthy, but they had bank accounts. They had some investments. They had pensions, which could be influential in how climate finance was addressed. And they also had voice. Seniors vote in large numbers, and politicians listen to what they had to say. And now I would add skills, because many seniors bring skills that they've developed throughout their working lives. We could bring these assets together. We could try and find ways of both supporting seniors who were currently engaged and reaching out to those who were not yet engaged but were ready to be engaged. And how did you go from there to the stage of having an actual functioning organization? At the time, there was a group that was offering small grants to groups who were interested in climate communications. So looking at what messages are most effective in engaging people and what techniques engage the most people. And we were successful in getting a grant. We used that funding to hire someone. We hired Emma. Then we also began to work with the groups that we had been in touch with to find out what seniors were doing. So we reached about 25 or 30 groups and we brought a number of them together very early and said, okay, here's what we've discovered. Here's what we've learned. What would it be helpful to you to do? And they identified forming a loose network, looking at how we could be active on financial issues and trying to support each other in amplifying and raising the issues of concern to seniors in climate action. So we followed up on that for about a year and a half, and we're now really at the point where we're saying, okay, we've had almost three years of activity. What have we learned here? What should we be doing now? What's the most strategic thing or what are the big issues that we should be working on now to have more impact? How has Climate Legacy turned those initial priorities into action? On the financial issues, we've developed a series of webinars on a range of issues. We've collaborated with a couple of other groups. One is SHIFT that works on pension action. We've collaborated also with the National Association of Federal Retirees. We've looked at the public sector pension plan. We've looked at green bonds. We've looked at how you can use ESG principles in your own individual portfolio. And we've collaborated with others in some campaigns around the banks and encouraging the banks to divest. So that's been essentially a series of about seven or eight webinars. In terms of how we support the network, a couple of examples during the provincial elections, a number of the groups, of course, were working on arranging all candidates' meetings in order to find out what the candidates' positions were on climate action, also in sharing information and getting out the vote. So we had several meetings in which we brought together people in our network to talk about what they were doing in terms of elections and how we could share that information with others and learn from others in what techniques are most effective in letting people know what the climate positions of the candidates are and also getting out the vote. In another area, the federal government has had two major consultations, one on reducing emissions and the current one on 
strategies for adaptation. And in those cases, we've collaborated with others essentially to let our members know that they can participate in these consultations. And in a couple of cases, other groups have prepared background information and other ways of supporting the preparation for your input into the consultations. And so we've circulated those as well. Thirdly, Emma has developed three major communication tools, a website and a social media presence and a newsletter. And we've used those to collect and share information about what the network is doing and also what's going on at the federal and provincial levels. Every month, we write a newsletter that has usually one article in it that is a climate issue that is less well-known but would be of interest to older Canadians specifically. We also have a list of what the network is up to, so events. And then usually I try to have a quote of the month from one of our network members that's inspiring. Otherwise, we have our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, where we try to post what the network is doing, amplifying their work and also providing it for some who might not be as aware of it. And then I have occasionally produced some reports or literature reviews of research about communicating with older adults. So for the provincial election, I produced a report talking about how best to talk about the election and climate change to older adults. Why has the intersection of financial issues and climate been an important thing for your group to focus on? Money has been of a lot of interest to our group. Our analysis is that how it is invested is a huge element of the climate crisis. And we need to tackle it from all sides, whether it's individual or public spending. So on the one side, we've been trying to encourage people to divest from fossil fuels. But it's not just a question of divestment. It's also a question of reorienting that money to climate solutions. It's interesting, I think, for seniors because it's an area where you can act at a number of levels. So if you happen to have a bank account with a bank that invests in fossil fuels, you can raise that with the bank. And if you don't like their answer, you can move to either another bank or a credit union. With your own personal investments, once you know more about what various corporations and banks are doing, you can reorient your personal investments. Also, most seniors have some kind of pension funds, and the pension funds are very big actors in terms of fossil fuel investments. And as a group, you can bring pressure to bear on your pension plan. Again, moving away from fossil fuel investments and towards more renewables. As we move to a lower carbon economy, in order to be doing their due diligence, both in terms of their own personal investments as well as the corporate diligence, there needs to be more consideration of the risk of not acting on climate action. What are some of the communication strategies and outreach strategies that are effective in connecting with older adults around climate issues? I think that there are a lot more seniors doing activism or doing organizing than we realize. And yet there's very, very little research about why the demographic is active or not, what kind of language would encourage them to get involved. A couple of things that I was able to find and also that we've parsed together through our own anecdotal conversations with the network and with ourselves was to be concise and specific to people's localities. 
older adults in particular who have lived in, say, their homes for long amounts of time, for example, who have lived in their neighborhoods for 20 plus years, there's a lot of care for place. So it's important to talk about how that place is being impacted by climate change and what the risks are. One that I think is maybe getting harder to achieve, but I think we need to really push to try and continue to do is to find common ground with the people we're talking to and in fact, engage in conversations. I think it's really important that we start from a place of, well, what do we have in common? What do we share? And what do we care about before we get into the conversation of climate change? Finding common ground can build trust. I think moving also your communications partially offline is really important. Obviously, seniors are involved in online communities, and that's increasing, but there still remains a percentage of the demographic that is not extremely online. And then the other thing that I had thought about a lot is about providing scripts and practicing. We've been in a pandemic where we don't talk to a lot of strangers, and I think there's a lot of reticence to have conversations with strangers. So it's helpful to have a script that lays out, say, the conversation starters, like weather, events taking place in your local community, sussing out whether you can engage that person in politics. And the last thing I'll say is that we are often trying to talk to people about facts, right? Climate change is very fact heavy. (laughs) But what researchers have found generally, I would say this is not necessarily just for older adults, but what will get people to open up about their own fears and concerns about climate change is by developing trust and developing a friendship before you try to get into the facts. If you think about this as a conversation and not as a, I don't know, teaching opportunity or as a shaming opportunity, you know, you should be doing more, then you're going to go a lot farther. There was a phrase that I used in the political toolkit, which wasn't necessarily universally appreciated when I shared it with some of our network members, because I think people really cling to facts. They're really important. And I completely agree. We don't want to stray from the fact that there are lots of things that are very true. Climate change is real. This is happening. But I use the quote, the facts don't change minds, friendship does. And I think that building relationships, though it may take longer than listing off a series of facts about how much time we have left and how much more we need to do, I think it enables longer term actions as well as you develop that friendship and develop it for the long term. We've had some success in reaching out to groups that are already engaged and in deepening the work of seniors there and in connecting them. Where we haven't been so successful is reaching out to that much larger group of people who are concerned but not yet engaged. Initially, we thought that by providing information and examples of how seniors were engaged, providing information about activities that are taking place would support more engagement. And I think it does support some, but it's not enough. And so we really need to rethink that part of the work as to how we reach out to this very large group of people who are more and more concerned, but not really engaged. We know that there are some people who are more predisposed to being open to climate change. So this would be seniors who are already engaged in, say, conservation work, gardeners, people who are hikers, people who are bikers, you know, people who can see for themselves what is happening. But we are not quite sure where exactly these people are and what the best way of getting to them are. So I think what we will probably do is to pilot two or three communications projects 
in targeting one or more of those groups of people to see if that works in getting them more engaged on climate action. The challenge is that older adults are a very diverse demographic, right? Besides age, there is not one thing that they necessarily all share in common. And certainly with the pandemic being the focal point of the last two years of Climate Legacy's existence, I think making sure that we recognize the opportunities now that things are a bit more open is also going to be exciting. You know, we've been really constrained by the pandemic. But I think the tendency among a lot of people who might be described also as this movable middle who care about this and are concerned about it, but have not gotten involved in volunteering or not gotten politically engaged on the subject. I think the climate change is often considered very overwhelming for a lot of people. And the easiest way to deal with that when they are busy or afraid of it is to ignore it. And so having to get across that barrier of, okay, well, how can we show it can be more manageable? That's definitely something that I think will be really interesting to explore in those pilot studies. And that I think is a real challenge for almost every climate group that you would speak to. How does climate legacies work reflect the growing recognition in the climate movement of the interconnection between the climate crisis and questions of social, economic, racial, and gender justice? One thing that we've discovered through the research is that many people see climate change as an environmental issue, and therefore they don't necessarily connect the impacts to health and food and livelihoods and transportation and other parts of their daily life. So it's been an opportunity, I think, to expand their understanding of what climate change is. We really can't create a new society around a more sustainable set of principles without considering issues of human rights and issues of equality and how we address poverty and fair work. So I think it's an opportunity to reconceptualize how we live together and that We can't create sustainable societies with high levels of inequality. We can't create sustainable societies with human rights abuses. So in many ways, all these issues that we worked on over the last 30, 40, 50 years, actually, in some cases, they're all coming back in this issue of how we address humankind's biggest challenge. Talking to an older demographic is also such a great vector for some of those issues because, of course, a lot of the visible consequences of climate change that we are currently experiencing, like extreme weather, extreme heat, tend to affect what we would call vulnerable demographics more. So that means lower income Canadians, older Canadians, infants, stuff like that. And so it becomes a personal thing for the folks that we're trying to reach out to. And at the global level, of course, the people who are least responsible for creating the situation we're in are the most affected. And so we can press the Canadian government to carry its fair share in the global climate finance discussions in living up to the international agreements that have already been made about giving funding to, in many cases, southern countries, poorer countries, to address the current impacts of climate change and to help them prepare for a future where these impacts are going to be more serious, as well as to mitigate the impact of climate change. You have been listening to my interview with Betty Pluis and Emma Bider about Climate Legacy. To learn more about the group, go to climatelegacy.ca.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Yeah.